The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Now, here's Pastor Chris Rollins. Good morning. Welcome to Coastal Community Church. Great to have you with us here today. I am Pastor Chris. We are in week two uh, of a series that uh, we've kind of a popular series here at Coastal over the summer uh, called At the Movies. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to be preaching uh, from the movies themselves. We just basically use movies that people are watching, uh, current or popular movies, as a hook or a springboard uh, to talk about uh, spiritual truth. Um, and uh, today we're using this movie, Ocean's 8. I doubt many of you have actually seen the movie Ocean's 8 yet. It just came out uh, this past weekend. I, uh, I saw the movie, uh, or I think it started on Thursday. I, I saw it, and uh, I would say it's a good renter. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I thought sometimes we, we do these movies, and I, we watch them, or I watch them, and I go, eh, you know, it's okay. So, I mean, it was, it was not a bad movie, but not a great movie either. Um, but raise your hand, though, if you have seen any of the Ocean's movies, Ocean's 11, 12, or 13. Okay, that's what I thought. Probably many of you, uh, most of you. Uh, the Ocean series, I don't know if you know this or not, was actually inspired by the 1960s uh, movie, Ocean's Eleven, uh, starring the original Rat Pack of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. Anybody see that original movie? Okay, one per, couple people. Okay, very good. Um, by the way, that's the original Rat Pack, not George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt. Um, Ocean's 8, though, uh, is a spinoff of that series. Now, there are, there are some obvious hooks, some spiritual hooks in this movie uh, that I could preach about. Uh, we could talk about what the Bible has to say about uh, stealing, uh, because after all, all of these Ocean's movies basically are heist films. Uh, this one included. Uh, I, could, I could spend some time talking about the value of a team. Uh, that, that's another premise uh, that's prevalent throughout all of these films. Uh, you know, to pull off a big heist, uh, to accomplish something great, you got to assemble a, a great team of people. And each person in that team, each part of that team, you know, has got certain gifts, certain skill set to help uh, the, accomplish the purpose of the team. And that's all throughout the Bible. That's an easy thing uh, that I could preach about or use this morning. But I don't want to use those this morning. Um, Really, the one thing about this movie that really stands out and kind of obvious, especially during uh, this you know, culture that we're in right now, is the all what? All female cast. That's right. All, basically, all females. And uh, some big uh, A-list uh, female actors. Um, and, and when I think about, though, uh, the beautiful women of the Bible... Uh, who became heroes. Because, uh, by the way, that's kind of the, the theme for this series this summer. Uh, we're using uh, an, an, the idea of looking at heroes uh, from these movies and then looking at heroes in the Bible. Uh, heroes assemble. So when I think about a story in the Bible that contains a heroic woman and drama and intrigue and murder and high stakes... Uh, one particular story stands out to me. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, it's the story of Esther. It's the story of Esther. And uh, I want us to look at that story today. Uh, Esther chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says this. 
This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, King Xerxes was the leader of the most powerful nation on the face of the planet uh, in the land that is now today Iraq. Uh, he was king over northern Africa in the west to India in the east. And being king, of course, he had a lot of money and a lot of fame, and so he decides that he's going to put on an expo. Okay, kind of a world uh, fair, world's fair, if you will, the great city of uh, uh, Susa in Persia. And so for six months, all of the nobles, all the important people from all these 127 provinces came to visit and to see all of the riches of King Xerxes. Now, at the end of this expo, he has this huge party that lasts for seven days, seven straight days of nonstop drinking and eating and music and partying and dancing. On the last day, while the king and all of his buddies are basically tying one on, the king has this grand idea. I'll tell you what, guys, this queen that I have, she is a beauty. She's a knockout. Let me bring her in for you so you can take a look at her. So he sends for one of his servants, and he says, go tell Queen Vashti, that's her name, Queen Vashti, to put on her best dress. I mean, I want her to look great, and to put on her crown, and I want her to come, basically, and just parade around in front of all these drunk buddies of mine, okay? I'm going to show her off. Okay, so it's not 2018. This is way back when, okay? Um, uh, so when word gets to Queen Vashti that her husband, who again is probably drunk as a skunk, uh, wants her to come and uh, you know, come outside and parade in front of all of his drunk buddies, she basically says for him to take a hike, okay? Now, this, you don't do that back then. This really ticks the king off. And it was such a terrible thing uh, for the wife of the king not to obey the king that they actually have a huge meeting about it. And, and some of his buddies say, hey, king, listen, if your wife disobeys you, guess what's going to happen to us next? All of our wives and all the wives of the kingdom, they're going to start disobeying us. And so they call in the legislature, and they actually establish a law, a law of the Medes and the Persians, that because this queen had disobeyed the king, she is to be forever banished. Okay. So that's what the king does. He banishes her, Queen Vashti, uh, from the kingdom. And he wants everybody to know who wears the toga in his family, okay? Um, so after a while, King Xerxes, he uh, sobers up. And uh, he discovers that he's lonely in the palace all by himself. And he's so lonely, he says, you know what? I need a new queen. And so his advisors come up with a plan. They hold a Miss Persia pageant. Okay, so that they can find a new queen. Now, this national selection process is taking place, and while it's going on, there's a certain Jewish man by the name of Mordecai who's living in the area. Now, Mordecai had a young cousin that they had adopted into his family after her parents died. Her name was Esther. So Mordecai begins to think, you know, maybe I can take advantage of this situation. You know, if I can just get Esther before the king, man, I really think she'd have a chance because she's so absolutely gorgeous. So Mordecai tells Esther about the beauty pageant, and he gets her to enter. When King Xerxes sees her, 
he stops the pageant immediately and picks her, picks Esther as his wife. So get this. All of a sudden, she is queen of the entire Persian Empire. But nobody knows that she's Jewish. Well, one day, while Mordecai's at the city gate, he overhears a plot that two men have hatched to assassinate the king. So Mordecai, uh, when he hears what's going on, he sends a note to his cousin, now the queen, Queen Esther, to tell her about it so she can warn her husband, warn the king. Uh, Esther tells the king what uh, she'd heard, and she gives credit to Mordecai. The king has these two guys killed, and the incident is recorded in the you know, city's official records. Now, keep that little detail kind of lodged on the back of your mind because it's going to come up later in the story. So, fearing for his life, the king institutes this massive you know, political shakeup, and uh, he promotes an obnoxious politician named Haman. Haman, to be his right-hand man, to be his prime minister, so to speak. So Haman is this slimy political character. And uh, in fact, if you trace his uh, family tree, uh, you discover that he's an um, 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 uh, Amalekite. And uh, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau and had been longtime enemies of God's people. So Haman basically comes from this long line of people who are enemies of God and who hated, hated the Jewish people. He is an arrogant, prideful man. In fact, so much so that he literally demands that everybody bow down before him. When he uh, enters a room, when he walks down the street, everybody had to bow down before him. And everybody did, except this one Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. Being a Jew, Mordecai really felt that he should bow down to nobody except for his God. Now, Mordecai's refusal to bow really gets under the skin of Haman. And when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he even hated Haman even more. And so Haman goes home, and he, he uh, hatches an evil plot, not only to kill Mordecai, but to wipe out the entire Jewish people. See, the Oceans movies got nothing on all the plot twists of the Bible, okay? So he goes before the king, and he says, King, I want you to know something. There are some strange people in your kingdom, living in your kingdom. They're a different, strange kind of people. They have different laws. Uh, they, they, uh, they serve a strange God. They don't honor you. And they don't bow down before me. And you know what that tells me? That tells me they won't bow down before you. We need to do something about this. And so the king says, okay, here's my ring. Make a law you know, whatever you deem necessary, just take care of the problem. So, with the king's stamp of approval, Haman issues a decree that on a certain day, it's going to be free kill a Jew day. Okay, basically, that's what happens. And in fact, so much so that you have the legal right to kill all the Jews you can kill and you won't be prosecuted for it. And furthermore, if, if you kill a Jew, you get to take whatever property was theirs. I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen the Purge movies. That's basically what was going on. I don't know if that's where they got the idea from, but that's, that's basically what happened. 
So when Mordecai, a Jew, hears about this, he's devastated. He goes into deep, deep mourning. He starts uh, fasting, begins weeping and wailing out loud, uh, puts on sackcloth and ashes the way they did to mourn. And uh, his cousin Esther hears about it, and she sends someone to find out what's going on. Why is Mordecai in a state of mourning? So Mordecai pleads with Esther to use her position of power to take a stand on behalf of her people. Esther chapter 4 verse 8 says this. Please go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for our people. Now initially, Esther is afraid. Nobody knew that she was Jewish. And she had heard and everybody knew about what had happened to Queen Vashti. And she knew that you just can't walk into the king's presence. In fact, it had been about 30 days since uh, she had spoken to the king, and there was a law that stated that you actually had to be summoned by the king uh, to be in his presence, or you could be put to death. So all that's going on in her mind. When, when Mordecai hears how Esther is hesitant and afraid, he turns up the heat. And he makes a very impassionate plea in chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. He says this, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And then listen to this. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position. For such a time as this. Now, Esther's faith and her courage really begin to kick in now. Verses 15 through 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done... I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Talk about high drama. If I die, I die. And so she tells all of God's people in Susa to spend three days fasting and praying. Now notice, she doesn't try to do this all alone. You know, she knows she needs some help. She can't accomplish this feet all by herself. And so after she replenishes her spiritual tank, she tells Mordecai that she will go to see the king. And she decides to risk her very life and courageously say, if I perish, I perish. And so all of a sudden, this, this beauty queen, this, this young girl is transformed into this courageous, bold, brave woman of God. You can almost hear Esther's heart beating as she walks down the long corridor into the king's chamber. And she stands there knowing that if the king doesn't give her permission to enter, she can be executed. Now when the king sees Esther, he smiles. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? I will give you up to half of my kingdom 
if you want it. Do you know what most of us would have asked for? I mean, most of us at that point, we would have said, I want Haman's head on a platter. But Esther's smarter than that. Again, man, the plot just keeps twisting and turning. And she smiles back at him and says, Honey, I just came to see if you would let me cook dinner for you tomorrow night. I would love to do that for you, honey. And, and in fact, why don't you bring your prime minister, Haman, along? I'll cook dinner for the two of you. Now, just like in Ocean's 8, the, the men are just manipulated all throughout the story, okay? Um, by these beautiful, strong women. Anyway, okay. Um, and the king says, is that all you want, my dear? You know, you know, she's just smiling and showing some leg. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, um, and she says, you got it. You got it. I will be, we will be there tomorrow night. So he tells Haman, Haman, guess what? You're coming to my house tomorrow night. Queen Esther is going to cook us dinner. Now, again, Haman's got to be thinking to himself, man, this is it. Man, I've arrived. I've made it. I've been invited to the royal palace for dinner. So, they go, and Esther puts on a spread. I mean, she feeds them. She is the perfect hostess. The table is set. The food is unbelievable. She entertains them. It is a wonderful, wonderful dining experience. Now, the king is not completely stupid. He knows there's got to be more to this, you know, behind, something more behind all this. And so he says, okay, Esther, come on. You know, I, I know you want more than just to have a meal, you know, with me and Haman. You know, ask me for anything, and I'll give you anything you want, up to half of my kingdom. And she says, okay, let me cook dinner for you tomorrow night as well, and then I'll tell you. In fact, do this, invite Haman to come back as well. And if you do that, tomorrow night, I will tell you what I want. He's probably drunk and full of food. You know, it's like, sure, honey, that sounds great. So Haman leaves the palace that night. And again, he's walking on cloud nine. I mean, he's thinking to himself, man, I've arrived. Not only am I now the prime minister of the kingdom, but I get to have dinner with the king and his wife. And he is, as he's walking down the halls of the palace and walking, you know, on the streets, everybody is bowing down before him. And as they do, his chest is just puffing out with pride. And, you know, and just, you know he's just excited and feels so, you know, pumped up. But then he comes to the city gate. And there is that troublesome Jewish Mordecai. Now, maybe Mordecai's finally, he thinks, going to give me the honor that I deserve. After all, I've just had dinner with the royal family. But Mordecai not only doesn't bow, he doesn't even acknowledge him. So Haman is filled with anger, but he controls himself and because soon he, he remembers that he's basically going to have Mordecai and all of his people wiped out because he had that, that edict from the king established. But when he gets home, 
He's still filled with anger, and he gathers some of his friends together, and he tells them about what had happened. And about halfway through this self-promotion party, he stands up on the table, and he clears his throat, and he says, I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow, but... All of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He's furious. So he comes up with this great idea. In fact, his friends encourage Haman to go and build a scaffolding 75 feet high and then ask the king to hang Mordecai from it. Haman loves the idea. He has some workers start construction on the scaffolding immediately, all through the night and into the morning. He can hardly sleep that night. He is so excited that he finally is going to get rid of Mordecai. He's going to go see the king and demand that he be hanged. But here's where the plot thickens once again. There's one other person who can't sleep that night. The king basically probably ate too much of the queen's rich food. And uh, he's got heartburn, and he's uh, up all night with, you know, got to get some Rolaids or something. Um, and so while he can't sleep, he asks one of the servants to read from the city's official records. In other words, he's thinking, surely this will put me to sleep. You know, th if there's anything boring, it's the city, you know, the city, you know, notes or anything like that. And um, as, as he starts to doze off, he sits up when he hears about a story of a man named Mordecai who several months earlier had evidently saved his life. And so he asked the servant, hey, what's been done to honor and reward this man Mordecai and his family uh, for his loyalty? And honestly, he's embarrassed because he found out that basically they had forgotten to do anything special for Mordecai. Now, meanwhile... Haman's not been sleeping either. At that precise moment, horrible, evil, prideful Haman arrives at the court so that he can be the very first one in line to talk to the king about having Mordecai hanged. Haman is summoned into the, the king's presence. Haman is thrilled because in his mind, he is finally going to be rid of Mordecai. The king asks Mordecai a very simple question. Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman believes that the king is talking about himself, talking about him, Haman. And so in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, this is what Haman says. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I mean, this is so good. The king loves the idea. Man, that is awesome. Verses 9 and 10. 
Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. In fact, don't neglect anything that you have recommended. I mean, can you believe this twist? He is shocked. I mean, can you imagine his anger, his humiliation, his only comfort? is remembering that in a very short while, all the Jews are going to be killed. So, that night, they show up at the queen's palace, uh, Queen Esther, for the second banquet. And uh, once again, the king asks Esther what she wants from him. This time, she's ready. And again, kind of the, uh, you know, the meek, mild, waffling wife has now become this courageous, bold woman of God. And she says, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. And the king doesn't understand, or he did not understand until that very moment that his queen was Jewish. He unknowingly had signed the queen's death warrant. He then asked her, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. Haman falls out of his chair. <laughs> the king flies into this rage and he basically just gets up and he runs out of the room and then Haman's freaking out and he basically grabs Esther and begs Esther for his life. But just as the king came back into the palace, he sees Haman all over Queen Esther. And so the king can't believe it. I mean, in his mind, Haman is now trying to attack his wife. And so in verse 8, the king says this, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Haman was then led out of, to the, out of the palace, and he was hung on the very same gallows that he had constructed to kill Mordecai. The king then supplies weapons and soldiers uh, to all the Jewish people so that they could defend themselves if anyone didn't get the reversal of the order. And because of Esther's stand, because she was bold, because she was courageous, all of her people were saved, and Mordecai then becomes the new prime minister, second in command, answering only to the king. That's a great story about a great woman of God. Now, there are two lessons, only two lessons and two principles here that I want to pull out. There's a lot of principles and a lot of lessons, but I only want to mention two this morning or focus on these two. Lesson number one, if you don't do something, God will send someone else. If you don't do something, God's going to send somebody else. You know, go back to Mordecai's plea in chapter 4. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jewish people will escape. In other words, what was he saying? He's saying, listen, 
Don't think that you are going to escape the Holocaust when it happens. You are going to be wiped out just like everybody else when it becomes clear that you as well are one of God's chosen people. And then he says this, for if you remain silent, if you keep your mouth shut, if you do nothing at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews, it will arise from another place. But you and your father's family, they're all gonna perish. What was he saying? Again, if you don't seize this moment and do something for God, if you don't take action, God is simply gonna send somebody else. Now, I love Mordecai's understanding of God's sovereignty here. What he's saying is yet, sure, we have free will. You're not a puppet, but God is still God, and God is still in control, and he will still have his will and his purposes accomplished regardless of your involvement. Now, God could have just as easily, what he's saying, come up with somebody else to accomplish his purposes. Yes, Esther is important, but what he's saying is this, Esther, you are not indispensable. And let me tell you something, that applies to me and you today. Never, ever, ever forget that you cannot, you will not, you will never be able to ultimately thwart God's plans and God's purposes. Let me tell you something, all of history is coming to his sovereign plan end. And you can forfeit some of your responsibility to do something great in the kingdom. All of history is coming to a close. God is sovereign. He is in control. He will accomplish his purposes. And if you and I don't allow him to work through us, if you don't do something, if you don't join him in his plan and his purposes, you know what he will do? He will simply move on to the next person. He will simply use somebody else to get involved in his plan and in his kingdom. And then you will just sit on the sidelines. And you're just going to miss out on the adventure of a lifetime. You will miss out on an opportunity to be used by God in a mighty way. You will miss out. You will blow the blessing that comes from being used by God in his kingdom. By standing up for God and his ways. And then you will probably suffer the consequences for your disobedience. You see, here's what I believe. I believe that it's time for God's people and God's church to rise up just like Esther did and to shout to God, to pray to God Almighty, God, look no further. Use me. Use us. Use this church as a tool in your hand for the salvation of your people. And if I perish, I perish. Lesson number two. Lesson number two, God has put me exactly where he wants me for such a time as this. God has put you exactly where he wants you for such a time as this. That is exactly what Mordecai said to Esther. He said, Esther, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, maybe, just maybe, this is your purpose in life. This is what God made you to do. 
And listen, you and I need to hear this today loud and clear. Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, you have come to the place where you are in this life, where you are right now, right here, so that God can accomplish his sovereign will through you in the most significant way that he ever will. And if you'll let him, it will result in the salvation of many, many people. I think one of the great lessons of this story is that God has placed each one of us in positions of influence, in positions where you and I can impact people for good. Listen, don't ever think that you're insignificant. God has put you right where you are for a reason, for a season, so that you can make an impact to change this world one life at a time. He has put you in your family for a specific reason, for a specific season. He has placed you in the neighborhood that you live, in your community, in Charleston, to be salt and to be light. He is, students, he has enrolled you at your campus. He has sovereignly put you in that school for a reason so that you can be an impact, so that you can influence people. Listen, you have the job that you have so that you can complain and gripe and moan. No, so that you can communicate to those people what does a follower of Jesus look like? He has put you where you are for a reason. Who you are and where you are carries a heavy responsibility and burden. And you have been given a God-given role that only you can play. Listen, Esther didn't know why she became queen, but God knew. God knew why. And God has a special purpose and a special reason for you. He has put you there for a, at a special time. And you, don't even, you might not even know what it is yet. You know what your job is to do? Your job is to be faithful. Your job is to be patient. Your job is to honor him for who knows but that you have come to this time and this place and your position for such a time as this. Bloom where you're planted. Brighten the corner where you are because God's got you where he wants you and you don't even know it yet. God has put you where you are not simply for you to enjoy the benefits of your position. It is not all about you. And he's put you there, not just for you to tolerate your existence. Look around and see all of the people that he has put in your life for such a time as this. He has put you where you are to help save the lives of people. And he's waiting on you to man up, to woman up, and to be bold and to be courageous and to take some risk like Esther did. And just to see and to watch then what God will do through you. We need more Esthers today. We need more Esthers in order to rescue people who are condemned to die. Listen, the Bible says you are either alive in Jesus Christ or you are dead in your sin. And it is that simple. And the, the, the reality is, is that 
people need a savior and one has been provided. It is life and death. It does matter how you see your life. It does matter what you do with it because the time is short and maybe, just maybe, God has you right where he wants you for such a time as this. Let me tell you something else. God can even use the hardships, the tragedies, the pain in your life for his purposes. One day, in fact, one year ago today, today, a family from our church began the process of understanding just how God could use hardship and tragedy and pain for his purposes. Watch this. We are Matt and Kathy Bean. We've been going to Coastal for 12 and a half years. And we just wanted to share with you what's been going on in our lives over the past year, what a mighty and merciful God we serve, and how important fellowship and um, communion with other believers is. Last year around Mother's Day, I just started feeling very bad. I started having bad headaches every morning that just kept getting worse. I had nausea and dizziness, and also had some, some pretty extreme weight loss. My doctors checked it out. They couldn't find what was causing it. They just contributed it to a new medication that I'd started last year. And they said that it could take up to 10 weeks before I started feeling any better. So just to tell you how quickly everything kind of happened, um, we had a family vacation planned during that time. On Sunday, Matthew drove our family to Miami. By Wednesday, he was no longer able to walk unassisted, and by Friday, he had to be um, taken off the cruise ship that we were on by a wheelchair. We drove straight from Miami to Charleston. We arrived in Charleston at 10 o'clock, and by 10.30, he was in the emergency room at MUSC. And we found out that um, I had a brain tumor. They did a CT scan. They said, you've got a brain tumor. That's all we know at this point. Uh, they had to put a, a drain in my skull just so that they could relieve some of the pressure and do an MRI. So after that I woke up, I was in the pre-op room surrounded by a team of eight to ten doctors. Uh, Kathy was there, Pastor Chris was there, and at that point they shared with us that, you know, the brain tumor had a cyst around it and that it did not start in the brain. And you know, Pastor Chris always talks about how important two o'clock in the morning friends are and he was my two o'clock in the morning friend. I called him right after they said the words brain tumor and he dropped everything and came to be with us at the hospital. And um, they told us that, you know, this, this tumor was pretty serious. They didn't say it so in so many words, but didn't really expect Matthew to even make it out of surgery. So we went into the waiting room to wait. Um, after about two hours, um, I had, you know, during this time, Pastor Chris had asked if he could email um, the church and share with them what was going on and ask for prayer. I said, absolutely. So after about two hours, um, I heard a little voice in my head that said, um, it doesn't have to be cancer. It can be nothing. Ask for nothing. Pray for nothing. And so that's what I did. So four and a half hours in, the neurosurgeon came into the waiting room bouncing up and down, grinning from ear to ear, and said, I don't think it was cancer, and I got it all. He said we had to wait on the final pathology, but she was convinced that she had gotten everything out. 
I just remember waking up in the hospital room and uh, I felt so good. You know, all the, the pressure had been relieved from my brain. And uh, I was actually hungry for the first time in weeks because I'd lost about 25% of my, my body weight, you know, with this experience. And uh, then I remember Kathy coming in the room and she was just smiling. She said, have you heard? And I said, heard what? And she said, they think that they got it all, that it didn't come from anywhere else. And, uh, that it was a cancer. And I, I was just so relieved, you know, and I was so happy that I was gonna get to see my kids again, you know. So afterwards, you know, we had some, some different exams to go through. They did some MRIs and some, some more CT scans, and in the course of this testing, they found tumors on both of his kidneys and some spots on both of his lungs that were especially concerning to us because Matt's dad and his brother had both passed away from lung cancer that had spread to their brains. So we really felt like we'd gotten over one hurdle, but now we were facing even more. Um, you know, we were pretty down and out at that point. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but you know, over the last year, uh, I've had surgeries to remove both the tumors on my kidneys. The pulmonologist feels like the spots on my lungs could could even be lymph nodes. They haven't changed in size or appearance, so they're just going to monitor them. They're going to monitor my kidneys and my brain, you know, every so often. Just make sure that, that nothing else is growing there. And while all this was going on, you know, for the first month after brain surgery, I was with Matt all the time. He couldn't be left alone, and it was the first time that I got to drive the car without him with me, and I was praying, and I was telling God, thank you, and just praising him for what he had done. And I heard that little voice again that said, would you still think I was good if the answer had been no? And I had to really think about that so I could give an honest answer. And the answer is yes. Even if it had turned out to be a different way, I would still think that God was good. I would still think that God was merciful. I would still praise him and I would still be thankful because even though I don't know what the end looks like, and I don't know how it's going to go. He does, and I just have to have faith in that. You know, I don't think that my faith wavered through this, but I think when you are faced with the, the possibility of, of dying, you know, things do run through your run through your head, and you know, I was certainly scared. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the things that I treasure here on this earth: my my wife, my marriage my kids, um, and so I was really scared. Um, I don't deserve anything that, that has happened to me in the last year as far as you know, being healed, but I'm certainly thankful and grateful for it. I'm so thankful for everyone that showed us love and support through this, all the prayers. Uh, we had people bring us meals for several weeks you know, when I got home from the hospital from the brain tumor, and people are still continuing to check on me and pray for me. So we are just so thankful and blessed for everything, and we thank you guys. Amen. Right. In fact, it is, uh, again, one year ago today that Matt and Kathy were in that hospital, and uh, she made that phone call uh, to me to, um, about the, their situation, and they wanted to come today, actually, and... Um, 
uh, we wanted to share this, their testimony, but also uh, bless all of you with a strawberry shortcake that uh, Kathy made and uh, homemade uh, pound cake and all of that. And it's just our way of uh, giving thanks today for what God uh, has done through them and through their lives. But I want to say this, listen again. You know, God has the amazing ability to even use our pain and our tragedy and our difficulty for his purposes for such a time as this. And I don't know what you're dealing with and I don't know what you're going through, but God does. And he does have a plan for it and he wants to use it for his glory and for the good and for the saving of many people. And listen, maybe today is your day where you come to terms with that. Maybe you are already a believer and you've been kind of living a purposeless life and you have forgotten that God does have you where he has you right now for his purposes and for his plan and he's waiting on you to join him. He's waiting on you to join him. Maybe you're in the midst of going through something really difficult but you've forgotten that, listen, you know what? God can even use this. He has the ability, if we'll allow him to, to use our pain for his purposes. Maybe you're here today and you're not yet a believer. Listen, what are you waiting on? The very thing that you've been searching for, you've been looking for, it's not religion, it's not other relationships, it's not, uh, you know, it's not substances. The very thing that's gonna fill that void in your life, it is a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. You are a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, and we're in need of a savior, and one has been provided, his name is Jesus. And if you will simply come to him today in faith, in humility, it's, listen, you don't have to clean up your life first. You don't have to fix something in your life before you come to him. You come as you are. You come just as you are. He is waiting. He is waiting with open arms to welcome you, to embrace you. He will run to you. You just got to take that one step of faith and just admit it. Admit that you're a mess. Admit that, that you do believe that Jesus really is who he always said he was, what the Bible says about him, what was witnessed by hundreds of people, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he went to a cross for your sin, and he rose from the dead, and he is alive. And if you will put your trust and your faith in him and what he did for you, he will welcome you into his forever family. He will bless you beyond your ability to comprehend, and he will give you a purpose and a reason for living for such a time as this. You can come home today. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, today I do thank you for your word. I thank you for these godly women in the Bible, women like Esther, women of great, great courage and faith who are willing to take a stand, who are willing to, to lead their people to salvation. And Father, I believe that there are Esthers in this room. There are men, there are women who are ready to be bold, to be courageous, to stand up for what is true, to stand up for Jesus and to come to him and to lead people to him, to even to allow you to use wherever they're at, in their circumstances, right here and right now, at that job, in that neighborhood, uh, in, in this uh, school, for such a time as this. And God, I also believe that you use the pain and the tragedy and the difficulty in our life, if we'll let you, for our good, for the saving of other people, and for your glory. And God, I believe today that there are people in this room who are not yet believers. They have not yet stepped across that line of faith, but they are ready to come home today. Listen, if you are, just pray something like this very simply. Just say, dear Heavenly Father, God, I admit it. I have blown it. 
I'm a sinner. I have pushed you out of my life. But today, God, I come home. I want to come home. I believe. I believe that Jesus really is your son. I believe that he went to a cross to pay for my sin. I admit, God, that I have pushed him out of my life, but today I walk toward him. Not only do I believe that he went to a cross, but as much as I understand, as much as I know how, I believe that he rose from the dead and he is alive. And today I put my faith and my trust in him and him alone and for the rest of my days God now I just want to follow Jesus I just want to become more and more like you see me now your child your son your daughter forever adopted into your family I love you God I pray this in Jesus name amen amen you've been listening to a message from Pastor Chris Rollins of Coastal Community Church for more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like Check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.